2: Hi,
0: everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 239th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most beautiful and talented actresses of her generation. An English Oxford alum turned Bond girl turned Best Actress Oscar nominee, who is a Best Actress Oscar contender this season for Matt Heinemann's Marie Colvin biopic, A Private War, which is having its world premiere on Friday here at the Toronto International Film Festival, and in which she gives as strong a performance as any she has ever given on screen. Rosamund Pike. Over the course of our conversation at the Sheridan Center Toronto Hotel, the 39-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, from the considerable pros and cons of her Bond Girl experience in 2002's Die Another Day, to the career-changing significance of 2009's Best Picture Oscar-nominated An Education, to the backstory of her first leading film role in 2014's Gone Girl, to the immense sense of responsibility that she felt in telling Marie Colvin's story. But first, I was joined in downtown Toronto by Matt Bellany, the Hollywood Reporter's editorial director, to discuss the opening weekend of the 43rd Toronto International Film Festival and other award season developments that have happened around it. Matt, thanks for joining us. No problem. So let's start with some news from a few days ago when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced that it has abandoned, for this season at least, plans to implement an Oscar for Best Popular Movie on top of an Oscar for Best Picture. You and I were both more supportive of that idea than most. We talked about it the last time you were on this podcast. What happened here?
2: Well, I was open to it. I think people who really thought about this were open to some kind of an acknowledgement of the aspect of the movie business that is not now honored for the most part on the Oscars. But it was all in how they communicated it and how they rolled this out. They didn't tell anyone what the parameters were going to be for this popular Oscar. So everyone just went to the negative and said, this is stupid. (laughs) I still believe there is some kind of way to acknowledge those types of movies in a way that doesn't cheapen the actual best picture. But that's up to the Academy. And so far, they were not able to come up with a rationale that made sense. So they just scrapped it.
0: Well, in the movie that was going to be potentially most affected by this category was Black Panther, which was a very popular movie that also had buzz for best picture before the popular Oscar idea was introduced. Now that the popular Oscar idea is gone, how do you think this affects Black Panther? You've been a proponent of the idea that it could do very well.
2: Oh, I think it could win this year. I think there's enough support behind the film and an acknowledgement that a movie like this does so much business. I mean, you look at the history of the Academy Awards. Until a few years ago, that mattered. Mm -hmm. It really did matter if you were a big popular movie like Avatar, Titanic, or Silence of the Lambs, something like that, that moviegoers actually went to see. But the irony of the whole situation is there are three movies this year, at least, that are big popular quote unquote movies that will likely be best picture nominees black panther plus first man mm-hmm. the damien chazelle space drama that will likely do very well at the box office and a star is born mm-hmm. which you and i both saw last yes. night and that is a big popular movie with a you know huge movie star that people are probably going to go see will almost certainly do more than 100 million dollars and that will likely get more people invested in this oscar race
0: well Another thing that happened here just as Toronto was getting started that involves the other kinds of movies that have been winning Oscars the last few years, that type of movie, is the Venice Film Festival jury unanimously awarded its top prize, the Golden Lion, to Roma, the Spanish-language, black-and-white, no-movie star movie from Alfonso Cuaron. That one, again, the top prize, the second place prize, the grand jury prize and best actress went to the favorite, which is a movie. The Fox Searchlight has a lot riding on. The actress winner was Olivia Colman for playing the queen in that one. What's your take on that film? I think we all have been hearing between Venice and certainly what I experienced in Telluride that Roma has massive support, but the favorite seems to have divided people a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I, I liked the the favorite a lot. I was not as familiar with the director, Yorgos Lanthimos, as most people who saw The Lobster or Killing of a Sacred Deer. But I liked it a lot. And I think it's going to be that movie that has a lot of ardent fans in the Academy, people who just go nuts for it and preach about it all the time. And then there's going to be a segment that thumbs its nose or says they don't get it or what is this. But the question now with the, with the voting parameters is... Are the fans going to be enough to vault it into that upper echelon of picture and director wins? Well, and yeah,
0: the the thing is, I agree with you that it could be very divisive. There aren't many movies with three female protagonists, no male leads, that have done very well in the best picture category in recent years or really any year. But the way the voting system works nowadays with the preferential ballot and all of that is that it doesn't require that many people to love you to get in. I mean, we come back to the Tree of Life, for instance, which I think probably more people disliked than liked, and yet the people who liked it were very passionate, and you only need a couple hundred of those. I think, I don't remember the exact numbers now that we've got a lot more Academy members in the last few years, but yeah, you don't need people to all agree that you're a great movie to get nominated. I think the idea that it could have as much of a shot as winning as a Roma or First Man or certainly now Starsborn is a little bit more questionable, but we're a long way from phase two, I guess. But let's hone in more on First Man, which has sort of in a weird way been lost a little bit in the hoopla over Roma out of Venice and Telluride and now Starsborn here in Toronto. What's your take on this? This is Damien Chazelle's first movie since La La Land won and then lost Best Picture. Could this one go as far?
2: I think so. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was an amazing visual and technical feat. The knock on it from some people has been it's not as emotional as Mm -hmm. maybe a movie like that could have been. But honestly, I thought that was kind of the point. Neil Armstrong was a really subdued guy, and a lot of the emotion was internalized. So I think that it's appropriately reserved, and I really appreciated that when I saw it. The visuals in this movie are stunning, and the way that he conveys the space travel is something that you have never seen before. It makes it makes Apollo 13 look like a <laughs> whitewashed right. and very, you know, painted over version of space travel, right. which is appropriate for the time and the visuals are spectacular. I don't think any of the controversy, the flag stuff. Oh, I don't ridiculous. think I think I don't think Academy members care about that. No. It may impact box office slightly or it may give it another boost of curiosity from people. But I wouldn't be surprised if this becomes the stable, traditional Maybe older viewers, older Academy members gravitate towards this. But I see it chugging along and getting all the way to the end where we're talking about this in February.
0: And interestingly, a couple things, you say that it could be the favorite of older voters. Ironically, its director is 33 years old. Damien Chazelle was the youngest ever to win in that category for best director on With La La Land two years ago. Also, another fun fact, the supporting actress candidate for First Man and Probably a supporting actress candidate for the favorite, maybe best actress. They are both gonna have played the same role in the crown. You've got Claire Foy ceding the role to Olivia Coleman on Netflix's The Crown. So Oh, of in the future. I was gonna in, say,
2: well, Queen Anne is not Queen Elizabeth. No, no but, no. In a, but in she's the, playing Queen Elizabeth yes. in the next episodes yes. of, the, of next. the Crown. Yes. <laughs> okay,
0: so the big story, though, out of Toronto and probably now the front runner to win the Audience Award here, the People's Choice Award, which has generally corresponded pretty well with Best Picture, is A Star is Born. It premiered on Sunday night here at the Elgin and really couldn't have gone over much better. I wonder if you can just kind of take listeners into the room and explain how people— There, yes, some industry insiders, but plenty of civilians as well, responded to this Bradley Cooper-directed movie starring Cooper and Lady Gaga, fourth incarnation of this movie over the last 80-something years. How did it play?
2: Well, first of all, I think Lady Gaga is still thanking Bradley Cooper for putting her in this movie (laughs) and crying and jumping up and down in her excitement for how well it turned out. No, I mean, it was an electric atmosphere. The crowd there was clearly buzzed to see a gigantic star in Lady Gaga deliver a performance like this. And it went over so well that it's one of those where you worry it didn't peak too early because I think when critics see this movie, mainstream critics, it's good. It's a great film, but it's very traditional. And, you know, as you said, this story has been told three times before. It's certainly not the most original and groundbreaking movie in the race this year. It's just really well done. And Gaga is amazing in the role and the music is fun and great and the drama is real and it really kicks you at the end. So I I think that this could be one of those where it, it does—do you know if it's going to be a, considered a musical at the Globes? Well, that's the
0: big dilemma facing the Globes with this this year, with Bohemian Rhapsody, with a few others, where it's basically a drama with music. But how do they treat those movies in the past? In the past, they up until a few years ago, they pretty much let the studios get away with whatever they wanted to do <laughs> in that category, which usually meant— putting a drama with music in musical because that was an easier category to win. Nowadays, they've been a lot stricter or more recently, they've been a lot stricter about that. And I would guess that they will not be able to get it into musical, but but we'll, well see. Because if
2: you do it for one, you got to do it for all of those. Exactly. And, I mean, Mary Poppins seems to be the a straight musical, right. and that would probably be in that category. Maybe Mama Mia, uh, Mama Mia, too. <laughs> okay. If they want Cher to show up at the <laughs> right. at the Globes, right? But yeah, this this is not a musical by any means. No. It's a drama about musicians.
0: And the big questions that people had going in were, you know, answered. Can Bradley Cooper sing? Well enough, yes. I think. Yes, good enough. Yes, and can Lady Gaga act? Yes. Now that you know, people could say, "Oh, well, she, what do you mean? We didn't know the answer." She won a Golden Globe. Well, coming back to the Golden Globes, uh, you know, they they are not the most reliable indicator of things like that. They wanted her in the room. She was nominated, then they awarded it to her. But wasn't here, that
2: the side of the infamous Leo DiCaprio yes, side the, the, eye, <laughs> where he he was openly rolling his eyes when she won, basically? And I think he she brushed up again, accidentally brushed them or something
0: on the way up to win. So, yeah, I mean, it turns out Lady Gaga can actually act. And Lady Gaga doesn't need a ton of makeup or a meat suit to yeah. look pretty. She actually, I thought, looked very, very nice. And it's interesting because the most recent A Star Is Born was, of course, with Barbara Streisand in '76. I don't know about you. But I think Lady Gaga kind of looks like Barbara Streisand. Well,
2: they make some references in the movie without spoiling yes. anything. There are some callbacks that that Gaga does have a look like hers. But I have actually not seen that film. I was unaware of the Star is Born franchise until I saw this one. <laughs> until it was rebooted. Uh, until it's been rebooted for for this audience. And I don't, not. no spoilers, but I don't think this is going to be a cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back
0: Chris Christopherson. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I think this is going to play into the Academy's hand because it's yeah. going to be a big, broad hit that also has the credibility. And I think Warner Brothers is smart enough to be pulling out all of the Ben Affleck playbook right yeah. now. They are doing to Bradley Cooper what they did to Ben Affleck and Argo, which is to take a beloved movie star that you've liked and reposition him as an auteur director. Now, at the time, Ben Affleck had directed a movie before that was well-received. This is a little bit of a tougher task because Bradley Cooper has not directed before, but I think they can pull it off with the subject matter and with the quality of the movie to position him as a director that is worthy of the Academy's attention. Yeah,
0: and the Academy director's branch, for all its sort of snobbishness in, in certain regards, has a long history of rewarding Actor directors, you go back all the way to Olivier with Hamlet, he won, but also more recently, Costner, Mel Gibson, Greta you know, Gerwig. Exactly. So that's something the Academy loves. Another thing, of course, the Academy loves that also connects this to Argo is a movie sort of about show business. If anyone can understand a movie about the challenges of being romantically involved with someone else in show business, it might be an Academy member and we've Yeah, seen and that. it's
2: not it's not about that. It is about the drive to become a star right. and to become successful in a brutal business. Right. And there are a number of winning films from the past decade, going yeah. back to the artist, going right. back to Birdman. You know, these films tend to do well with this audience because they relate. Exactly. So it's
0: interesting. It's still early and a lot can change, but at this point it's looking like you could not have more of an apple orange best picture front runner situation out of the gate where you've got again, Roma, this little movie.
2: Yeah. This Roma is the anti-popular
0: Oscar. The anti-popular Oscar. (laughs)
2: Literally they could not do more to make people not want to see it on paper. (laughs) It's black and white. It is set in a foreign country. Spanish. uh, Yeah. It is in a foreign language, but they have one thing going for Mm -hmm. it and that is Alfonso Cuarón and everyone is interested to see what his movie after gravity is gonna be. That's why I'm interested. And I'm definitely gonna see this. And I think Academy members, Netflix will do a good enough job getting people to see this movie. They're gonna screen the hell out of it. They're gonna make sure that you, as an Academy member, think this is the movie you need to see. And then, you know, it's up to them. And do you,
0: as a final question here, think there is gonna be a resolution to the, you know, in the in the way that Alfonso Cuaron will make people want to see it. There is something that will make some people not want to see it, which is the fact that it is a Netflix movie, meaning that outside of award season screenings, it's not going to be on a big screen.
2: Well, they'll want to see it. They just may not want to vote for it because right. of that. I mean, right. the, I believe there is lingering resentment at Netflix within the Academy and within professional old school movie people that believe that to be a real movie. I mean, Spielberg said it himself. Mm -hmm. It's not a TV movie. It's a movie when it's in theaters. So I do think that is a hurdle for them to overcome and giving Roma some kind of exclusive theatrical window, whether it's two weeks or a month or something will go a long way towards appeasing those Academy members who simply won't vote for a TV movie. Is Netflix going to buy Landmark? I don't think so. I think that it's more likely Amazon would buy Landmark because it makes more sense synergistically for their business. They could sell the tickets on Prime and things like that. But I think Netflix will probably do some kind of a deal with these cinema chains that will show Netflix movies. Like an Alamo draft? Yeah, like Alamo or some of the independent ones. Because the big chains won't show Netflix movies, as we know, because they put them in theaters the same day as they're on Netflix. But that's not the question. They will give a token release. They've already said that, that this movie is going to get a token release when it's on Netflix. The big move would be as if they move the theatrical release in front of its debut on Netflix. So you have to see it in theaters for a period before it's on Netflix. That would be a fundamental change in the Netflix model. And I think that the growing sentiment is that they will need to do that in order to appeal to these filmmakers who want to people to see their films in theaters and who still
0: consume the awards movies primarily on screeners. So it's a little ironically. <laughs> yes.
2: But, you know, but there is that option. Right. You know, the, you've always got the option to go and see it. And filmmakers want, you know, they want people to be able to go out and see the movie. They also want to know box office. Right. Matt
0: Bellamy, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And now for my interview with Rosamund Pike. Rosamund, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Scott, very much. So we always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born and raised in London. My parents were both opera singers. They met at the Royal College of Music. And well, my dad kicked my mother out of her practice room every week. And, uh, <laughs> and, they, uh, and I grew up in the flat that they rented since they were students. So,
0: How much do you think being around performing artists kind of encourage your own interest in getting into this stuff?
1: I think that was all I knew. I think that's what I knew was adults who knew how to play. Mm-hmm. And storytelling was sort of just part of the fabric of our lives. So it was discussing words, the humor of different ways of delivery, games. I love being backstage. I love watching the getting ready process. I love the transformation, I suppose. So I think from a very early age, I I wanted to transform.
0: And you were an only child so only you had child. their full attention, right? I guess yes. was that a good thing or a bad thing?
1: It meant we were sort of a little our own little tribe. I didn't have any allies my own age, so I guess I was quite adaptable. I think it's easier when you're an only child for for parents to take you with them mm-hmm. than when you've got many siblings. I don't think I would have spent so much time backstage if I'd had more siblings. Right. It's easier to slip one in under the radar.
0: Right. And when did you actually sort of begin to Pursue it beyond what kids normally do with a, you know, grade school player or whatever.
1: I think I was very certain that that's what I wanted to do as an adult from very, very early on, like, you know, four or five. Really? And, and I just found ways I could do it. I used to play the cello and whenever I was asked to perform the cello, I, I would do anything I could to sort of put the instrument down and, I don't know, tell a story or say a poem or something instead And then when I was at, I went to a boarding school in in Bristol in England and, you know, I sort of found a way around the system by joining the Bristol Youth Theatre, which meant I could get access, I could leave and I could go off and do this sort of club every couple of times a week. And then I moved from there to the National Youth Theatre. Well, that's
0: what I want to ask you. How did that happen? That's a pretty big deal.
1: Right? It, it was it's a wonderful organization the national youth theatre and I thank them for my whole career I didn't know it at the time I don't know four five thousand kids audition a year for i don't know 40 places or something and that's on on two courses which they run and you d- you know you do the kind of work that you do in a drama school in your first year games trust games vocal work and and improv and lots of you know lots of different dance styles fight training all that and then and then after you've done the course you're eligible to to play in the shows in the subsequent years. And I did one experimental piece that was a, a kind of devised show. And then I was lucky enough to play Romeo and Juliet. I was actually not the first person to be cast as Juliet. I was actually the substitute. But I've never minded <laughs> being the substitute from <laughs> then on. I, I always think it's actually good things came from being the substitute.
0: We'll talk about that, though, because so you're saying you auditioned out of the Bristol Theatre Programme to mm-hmm. become, and were accepted at the National mm-hmm. Youth mm-hmm. Theatre. You did your coursework, which made you eligible for Romeo and Juliet, Mm -hmm. right? And then you get Juliet, which I'm sure a lot of people were very envious about. And in fact, I've read in preparing for this, you said some people were not particularly kind about that when you were getting ready to play this pretty major part.
1: Well, I remember somebody saying to me, I mean, I must how old was I? Eighteen. Somebody saying, I'd never really had a serious relationship at that point. And I remember somebody saying, well, you can't play Juliet if you've never been in love. And I thought, but I've dreamt of being in love my whole life. And surely that's, you know, Juliet had never been in love until right. she fell in love with Romeo. Right. And I think that's exactly the time you should do it. You know, it's its its like doing those Jane Austen novels, when, which I later did in my career. It's, it's all about those people, young people, experiencing those big feelings for the first time.
0: And your performance in that was really a launchpad, right? I mean, who happened to be in the audience?
1: Well, my... My agent, my, my agent, who's been my agent for 20 years now, was, was in the audience, unbeknownst to me. I think it was actually because he represented Kate Winslet, and it was Kate Winslet's younger sister who was originally cast as Juliet. Oh, really? Oh, my God. And so he'd heard about it, and he thought, obviously, well, I'll go and see this play when it happens anyway. And I think the Kate Winslet little sister was already had an agent, and I think she got a television job, and that's why she pulled out of the show And so I was sort of plucked from the office in which I was temping, you know, getting my summer job, earning uh, whatever it was per hour as a receptionist. And and it was the best phone call of my life, probably. Right.
0: Because (laughs) so you have the agent, which means he or she is going to look for work for you thereafter. But you didn't stop you from going off to Oxford, right? I mean, or did you have a little gap year?
1: No, I did Romeo and Juliet the year I finished my A-levels, which is what you take in your last year of high school. Mm -hmm. And depending on the results of those, I had a place at Oxford to read English. And I met my agent on the brink of going there, Dallas, and he did put me up for auditions. And I was very sort of covert about it because I didn't want, I don't know, I didn't want to incite any kind of envy or someone thinking I was sort of you know, thought I was too good or, uh, you know, it's it's just a, you don't really want to have anything that makes you different when you, when out you start yeah. out somewhere. So I kept it very secret and would occasionally sort of go up to London on the bus and go to an audition. Not an ideal way to do either thing very <laughs> well. Basically, my academic career probably suffered and <laughs> I didn't get many of the auditions that I went up for.
0: Well, I mean, getting a chance to go to Oxford is, again, something that I think most people would envy. And yet I wonder, did you have any desire to go to a drama-specific school? Or was that not yet something you were considering as a, as a long-term thing for your career, that you would make a living as an actress?
1: I always thought I would make a living as an actress. I didn't ever anticipate making a good living, but I thought that would be <laughs> what I did, you know, and I right. would get by. I always thought I would go to drama school, but I thought I needed to grow up a bit. I thought I needed to live a bit, fail a bit, love a bit meet different people. I, I was very sort of certain about that, that I I didn't want to go as a teenager. I wanted to go three years later and maybe have travelled the world a bit. And and then I did get a television job while I was at Oxford over a summer. And it was so wonderful. I just thought, you know, who are you kidding? You've got this rationale that you speak out about wanting to be a bit older, but actually that's not your truth. Your truth is that you want to do this now. This is what you want to do. So you know, get out of that university and go to drama school. So then I went and applied and said to my tutors at Oxford that I was going to leave because I was, you know, although I really appreciated having a place there, I sort of knew that I was an alien on the wrong planet.
0: Were there acting opportunities within Oxford?
1: Oh, there were tremendous acting opportunities because you've got a lot of, you know, very smart people, very passionate people driven people and so you've got you know the directors producers of the future there and there are something like 30 or 40 plays happening a term Wow! Um, very ambitious projects yeah. too I mean I was in all my sons in the first in my first year I went on a tour to Japan wow. with Oxford University Dramatic Society we took Shakespeare to Japan and it was phenomenal I mean really extraordinary the things that open up just with the name of that university yeah. it's it's quite extraordinary we played at the Tokyo Globe <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was really. And then I think I did a, a production of Skylight by David Hare mm-hmm. in my in my last year, which, you know, was also the, they were they were big experiences and good directors. You know, a lot of the directors I work with at Oxford are now they are directors mm-hmm. and it's exciting.
0: And so you were now even in spite of that looking to possibly get out of there and go to, what, RADA or somewhere? Yes,
1: RADA probably, ideally, but Lambda or or Brislavik. But I, I got rejected from everywhere when I applied. And, you know, obviously rejection is very much part of an actor's life. But I I mean, there was no changing the fact that it wasn't something I wanted to do. I knew it was something who, who I was. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you can, you can say no and you can stop me, but you can't crush me. Right. And I knew that in my gut. And I suppose that, you know, you're looking really at a brick wall and you know that it's still what you have to do. And and that gives you a kind of determination, I think.
0: And so for those, the way it played out was that you just continued to get these professional opportunities in the summers. I mean, it sounds like that first one that you referred to, was that Love in a Cold Climate?
1: That was the second. The first one was Wives and Daughters. I had a, I had a sort of smaller role in a four-part BBC miniseries. And then Love in a Cold Climate, which was before my final year at Oxford, when I admitted to my tutors that I'd made a mistake and <laughs> would they would they accept me back? And right. they, you know, probably good for them. They made me take another exam uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to, to, to prove that I really was committed.
0: But that one was with Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper before directing. Before anyone really yeah. paid much attention.
1: And we had an amazing summer and Tom became a very close friend over that period and... I think it's a good series. He was a brilliant director then, and Mm -hmm. the same person, really, that he is now.
0: Well, so you're getting these jobs throughout the summers while you're in school. These are, you know, high-profile BBC. You're, You're being seen. But it sounds like things were maybe not steady enough or lucrative enough as you came out into the real world to solely do this. I read one thing that said you were just about to go full time as a as a bookstore clerk, just as something else came along. But that moment, were you ready to put this on the shelf for a little while and and make some money or, or the considerations at that point?
1: I was always going to carry on doing auditions, but I also was someone who was fiercely independent from a young age. And I think because, you know, there'd never been any great sort of financial security in my upbringing. I knew that I wasn't going to be an adult who was dependent on my parents so I knew I had to make some sort of a living but with something with flexible hours that would allow me to go on audition so I applied to work in Waterstones one of our great bookshops which mm-hmm. is still managing to survive even yeah. in this climate but at that point my my agent sent me up sent me a couple of pages I think they came through on a fax machine My like, gosh <laughs> how dating is that and they were for they were highly confidential, and they were for a, a movie called Bond Twenty, which <laughs> I was then to find out was going to be the twentieth Bond film in the in the franchise.
0: How many Bond films had you seen at that point?
1: I think i would seen zero. <laughs> so was this
0: God, was, was a... this exciting or intimidating or anything, or just another script to you? It
1: was. I'm afraid it was sort of almost just another script. I mean, I literally had been the kid who had a sleepover. My my mother had taken me away. Age. 10 because people were going to watch a Bond film and she thought it was unsuitable for a 10-year-old. Because of the Bond girls? I, I don't know. Because of the violence, <laughs> because of the guns? I, I don't know what her reasoning was. Right. Anyway, it made it sort of... I mean, it made it amusing when I then became a, a Bond girl. But um. <laughs>
0: Well, so how, let's break down how that happened. So you... You sent these confidential scripts, but that's not saying, hey, you've got the part if oh, you want Oh, no, wanted.
1: absolutely. No, it was it, that, that, that first one was going into a, a room in Eon Productions' offices, which is on Piccadilly. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking in there and seeing other girls. You know, that was the point where you just went to meet the casting director and you were going to do a a bit of a tape and all these girls were dressed in a way that I was just not dressed. I was in a big woolly cardigan, a bit like, I mean, not dissimilar <laughs> to the amount of, sort of wool I'm wearing as we have this conversation. Yeah. But I thought, Oh no, I see. I've got completely the wrong end of the stick here. I i, I don't know what this world is, but the casting director asked me to go upstairs and, and upstairs was Lee Tamahori who was going to direct this film, who was known for films like, known for once were warriors, particularly a very, Have you seen that film? Very brilliant film about the Maoris. And I went and met him and he asked me all kinds of questions. And then I left the room and went downstairs. And then I was just about to go out the door and there was a voice just said, don't go anywhere. The front desk was told not to let me go anywhere. So I (laughs) sat there and they said they wanted me to take me to Pinewood for a screen test. And it all went incredibly, incredibly quickly. And then that day that I did the screen test, it was like I'd won a competition to be a Bond girl for a day. You know, I'd never (laughs) seen, I mean, I had never experienced anything like it. A car coming to pick me up, flowers in a dressing room. I mean, it was an extraordinary privilege just to do the audition.
0: But it came with a moral dilemma, right? I mean, it sounds like you had to stand up for yourself that you were just 21. What were you asked to do and what was your handling of that moment? It's kind of interesting that you had the wherewithal to handle it this way.
1: Well, there were two scenes that I was asked to do. There was one in, in the MI5 offices, which would have been with, with, with M, who was obviously going to be by Judy Dench. Mm-hmm. And the other one was a, was a scene where Miranda Frost seduces Bond or, you know, hasn't revealed her double agent status and they go to bed together. And I was told that at some point in this scene, if it felt right, I, I should drop my dress and stand in my underwear. And and something just went off in my mind, and I stood there and I thought, "There's no way I'm going to drop my dress and stand in my underwear. If they want to see me in my underwear, they can, they can give me the part." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was so sort of certain about it. And I thought, "Well, maybe that's cost me the job," but it didn't. And I, it's something I feel quite pleased for standing my ground on that. Mm-hmm. And nor did they push it because I think the thing that's very important to say about the Bond films is that I know we've been through this year of Me Too, but but Barbara Broccoli was at the helm of that franchise and has been way ahead of all this stuff for years and years. And now I look back and I was, you know, over the last year, I've been thinking about that. And obviously a Bond film is is an environment that's ripe for all kinds of sexism. And I didn't feel uncomfortable or intimidated or wrongfully treated once.
0: But in your own mind, it's interesting the way that just a 21-year-old might experience the whole inherent glamorization and I don't know what you would call it of, of being a Bond girl. You said at one point, quote, I was 21 and I was made to look far more sophisticated than I felt. Instantly, I had to come to terms with myself as a woman and also as an object. I was looking at myself from the outside for the first time. That awareness for any girl is both horrible and fascinating, close quote. So the whole idea of, you know, all right, so they did give you the part, obviously, after the various screen tests and whatever. Now you're playing someone who by the job description has to be seductive and sexy and all of these things, something you had never done in a film because you'd never been in a film up to that point. How was the overall experience of actually making the film?
1: And to add to that, I had been a teenager who was never considered the pretty one. I was the friend in in a group of girls who, you know, I would have been the funny one or the the, the smart one. And my other friends would have been the pretty ones. And I think some sort of blossoming happened, uh, unbeknownst to me, around the time that I played Juliet. Mm -hmm. But whatever the the truth is, is that whatever conception you have of yourself as as about 14 kind of resides. That's what you think you are and what your place is. So I'd never had the pressure of being the attractive one. And so suddenly I found that pressure in the Bond film very, very great indeed. And... You know, they put a. I wasn't someone who wore makeup particularly, or you know, knew what to do with my hair. And suddenly, there was this long, lengthy hair and makeup process, two hours or something, which made me think, what that makes you think? Age twenty one is, my gosh, I must be so unattractive that they need two hours to make me presentable. That's what you feel, and yeah. inside, you feel you feel ashamed and crushed. I mean, you know. You, you do a career in film later and you realise that that's sort of, you know, it's so that you have enough time. And, right, right, You know, every, it's, it's not a sort of slight that mm-hmm. it takes you two hours to go through hair and makeup and it takes the guy actor, you know, 10 minutes. Right, right. It's just the nature of the beast. But uh, but at that age, and I had no experience, that's what I felt. Right. And there's no one really to share those concerns with. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't really want to air them anyway. So all that experience and, and then suddenly being, you know, you're you're told things about your body and, you know, what things suit you and, you know, the kind of shapes you can wear and the kind of shapes you can't wear. And I, I mean, I just never considered any mm-hmm. of this enough.
0: Do you think it was in the grand scheme of things a good or a bad thing to get that experience early in a career, like where you're being picked over, you know, at the beginning at such a young age as opposed to. You know, Glenn Close. I was just we just had on an episode. She didn't even appear in a movie until she was well into her thirties.
1: Yes, I think that might have suited me better in a way. Yeah, because I think, I mean, it was it was an unforgettable experience. That is, you know, there were amazing things: the travel, the being able to bring people to set, the being able to bring people onto the 007 stage and see the cars. But I looked way older than I was at the time. Inside, I was a sort of frightened little girl looking like a sophisticated woman. All decked out in Armani, and I think it lost me the chance to play as many sort of ingenues or young young girls in my twenties. That that because people thought you were so sophisticated. Yeah, Yeah, just so sophisticated. I mean, I suppose the exception to that rule was was Pride and Prejudice, Mm -hmm. which was wonderful.
0: Well, you said coming out of Die Another Day, quote, I was known by everybody but respected by none. Close quote. Why do you think that was? You think people just then assume that you're only good for being the sex object
1: i think so i think the world at large everybody loves a bond film everybody loves the women in the films but the general sort of niggling underlying feeling is is that you've been cast for things other than your acting chops and that you're probably pretty similar to the character you're playing they don't really think of it as a transformative process Mm -hmm. and actually i was nothing like Miranda Frost at that time, but it mm-hmm. was very, very hard to, to show people that or, or for people to believe it when you told them. Even when I said that I was nervous, people never believed me.
0: They think you're <laughs> being self-deprecating. Yes, or, or
1: something, yeah.
0: So is all of this why, rather than staying in Hollywood and potentially trying to strike while the iron's hot to some extent, maybe, but not with the way that you wanted it to be, you got out of there and went back to England, right? I mean, you weren't interested in more of that.
1: I don't know if the iron was hot. You know, for the other thing is that and, you know Frost by name, and 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 people assume Frost by nature. So that there was a sort of coldness to that character mm. that was very effective in the film. But it's very hard to get people to see you as, I don't know, bubbly or, or messy or or perhaps a bit girl next doory or a student or the young love interest after you've played such a sophisticated woman.
0: And there have, throughout your career, people have often brought up you know, Hitchcock Blonde comparisons or things. And in fact, that's what when you're saying <laughs> sure. that those that idea that you were potentially cold or whatever, that's why I was surprised that one of the things you did when you went back to England yeah. was play in a play called The Hitchcock Blonde.
1: <laughs> yes, but that was a, a huge relief. I did a play at the Royal Court, which, as, as you will know, is a has always been a bastion of, you know, avant garde, modern, new theatre, often quite provocative Risky, it's a wonderful place to roll court. And Terry Johnson, who was a playwright I really admired, had wrote this new play. And yes, it was called Hitchcock Blonde, but it was it was actually about the girl who played Janet Lee's body double, or who mm-hmm. would have played Janet Leigh's Lee's body double in Psycho, because he imagined that there's no way that Janet Lee would have been asked to do the close-ups in the shower. So there would have probably been some girl plucked from the typing room <laughs> and asked to appear naked. And, and, and she was a kind of girl who lived in a trailer park with an abusive husband and very ill-educated, but with a kind of self-possession about her. And it was about her relationship with Hitchcock. And it was a brilliant play.
0: Mm-hmm. made some interesting demands of you as well, right?
1: Yes, yes. It, it required me to appear naked in the play where she converts a situation very interesting in our current climate she mm-hmm. the, the, the the character converts a situation where hitchcock has asked her to undress and right at her most vulnerable where she's feeling humiliated she suddenly realizes because he's filming it that he's not looking at her he can only look at her through the lens and something goes off in her mind and she walks towards him takes his hand and makes him touch her breast mm-hmm. because she knows with an instinctive sudden realization that that will destroy him. And sure enough, it does. And he, he he cannot cope with that level of intimacy. He can only cope with it as the voyeur. Mm-hmm. And it was a very empowering and interesting moment. And I think I wouldn't have played a scene like that unless it had had that kind of dramatic power to it, I suppose.
0: Right. Well, one question I had about just directions a career can take where it could have really gone in a different direction, if this is true. Were you at one point around then approached about being in Harry Potter?
1: I was never That's not about true. being in Harry Potter. No.
0: Okay, because there was no. something here that suggested that they were maybe at least interested in you for the part that Miranda Richardson ended up playing, but that Pride and Prejudice precluded that. I mean, I no. guess there's bullshit out there. but the... No,
1: not that I'm aware of.
0: Yeah. So instead, basically, in terms of film, what happened in the years immediately after Die Another Day, you were doing very well-received work, for instance, in... The Libertine, which I know you ended up winning a Best Supporting Actress British Independent Film Award for. That's a you know, gotta feel nice. Yeah. And you have said in that case, this is two years after Die Another Day, that working with Johnny Depp was one of the highlights of your career at that point. Why was that?
1: Because Johnny was an actor I really admired and I you know, I thought, oh, it's it's all his powers of transformation that I really was drawn to. There was a kind of down and dirty rock and roll quality to that film. It was a period film, but it has a kind of grit to it. And that was really the world that I felt comfortable in. You know, that was a chance to do something that I, you know, that was much closer to what I, where I really felt comfortable mm-hmm. because there was nothing art. There was a kind of raw emotional truth to that role. And it was a small role, mm-hmm. but it required. You know, you to be lost in a moment with the other actor, and that's the only thing that has ever really interested me. it's It's never been floating above in a performative way. The truth is why I love cinema, yeah, it's something that makes me feel and something I can recognize some essential humanity in other in other people's performances mm-hmm. that I admire. And there was a chance to to be free, I suppose, and to get myself out of the picture, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, well, a year after that, I think was probably one that you look back at, I think, as a pretty important one. And rightly, that is as the reserved older sister of Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. This is 2005. You're acting in the directorial debut of Joe Wright, with whom I know the next few years you guys were involved. Also now with a bunch of other young actresses who became good friends, it sounds like, over the course of whatever it was, 12 weeks. And there just seemed to be so many eerie, funny crossing of paths over the years since. I know, for instance, Carrie did Skylight on Broadway, something you had done. You guys were together in an education, which we'll come to. But just as you look back at that one, was it the part or the experience or something else that stands out most to you about that project?
1: Pride and Prejudice was one of those charmed projects. And I was, funny enough, we're here at TIFF talking and I sat next to Kira on the plane on the way over here and we hadn't <laughs> seen each other for ages. We literally talked the entire flight. That's great. We were both reminiscing about how when Pride and Prejudice happened and was such a hit and people loved it and the warmth with which people greeted that film and the summer we had and the way it just rolled effortlessly through to a great opening and then on to awards and we sort of thought in our naivety that that might be how it goes. You know, we've been chasing that. You know, we said we've been chasing that ever since. Right. That it, it seemed sort of effortless. And I mean, it is a charmed story. There's something about everybody who touches Pride and Prejudice, have they have a magical experience. Because I think, as I touched on at the beginning with Romeo and Juliet, there's something about telling the story of young people feeling big feelings, falling in love, experiencing these colossal emotions for the first time that's very heightened and thrilling to be part of and it was a happy summer the crew was happy all of us were happy you know Kira was falling in love with Rupert who they were together after that film for a long time and I was falling in love with Joe Wright and it was a kind of magical period yeah and a very good film I think it was a beautiful film that Joe made and he had a wonderful way of working you know he brought everyone together and I'm sure he still does that He had the music, Dario Marinelli had written that beautiful piano music and we had that playing through the house we were in. It was a romantic experience and it had a sort of Donald Sutherland and Brenda Blethyn as our parents. There was a kind of belief we all had in in the material and an ease with which it came to be.
0: Did you guys ever discuss potentially you being in Atonement, which would have been the next one a couple of years later? We
1: did discuss it and... I would have loved to have been in it but there wasn't a space for me. <laughs> definitely I I think Joe and I had a dream that we might be like John Cassavetes and Gina Rowlands mm-hmm. at some point and and then it never was to be but no I think when you're with someone who's so brilliant we I definitely wanted to work with him again. I I wanted that creative partnership that had brought us together and sadly we never we never had it again although he went on to make a you know fantastic film which I was very much part of, but as a bystander.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, the one that I think next for you really made a a difference, and you've talked about it as a very significant one in terms of the way the industry perceived your capabilities would have been an education. Just to remind people, you're playing Helen, this sort of, I hope this is not offensive, ditzy party girl who is dating this thief, Dominic Cooper plays, but it's a comedic part. And we really hadn't, Seen you do much of that up to that point, right?
1: No, it was a joy to be able to do that because I read the script and and I said to my agent, "I think I'd like to you know go up for this part." And they said, "Well, it's very, very small." I said, "No, but I think I know what to do with it."
0: <laughs> did you know it was going to be with Carrie as well?
1: Well, Carrie was staying with me in l a at the time, so we both went and did a screen test, put ourselves on tape together.
0: For specific parts, or just put no, for swear- those
1: parts, yeah, for those yeah. parts. Joe jo was making the soloist in in LA, and we were living there, and Carrie was staying with us, and we were having a, you know, fun time going to auditions, and Carrie was going everywhere on the bus at that point because <laughs> she didn't drive, and <laughs> she she insisted that people could navigate LA on the bus. <laughs> yeah, we both did our put ourselves on tape for an education, and and both ended up doing it, and it was a great experience, and I loved the chance to be funny. I did find Helen very very funny. Mm-hmm. Because I thought here is someone who looks so insanely glamorous, and she's particularly glamorous as long as she doesn't open her mouth. <laughs> because as soon as she opens her mouth, it you know, it all goes
0: downhill. Well, I remember she's listening to people speaking French and different things, and just why on
1: earth would you do that? Yes. It was it was sort of the innocence and the right. the straightness of that character. Yeah, I, I loved it. It was a brilliant. Nick, that, Nick Hornby and I became very good friends after that, and we've been looking for something to do together, which that would be great. Yeah. We have done this summer. Oh, you have? Mm.
0: Is this Which one is this?
1: We've just made 10, 10 minute episodes for television or to be consumed whichever way you will. And it's the 10 minutes that it takes a couple to have a pint and a glass of wine in a pub each week before their marriage therapy. And it's Chris O'Dowd and I. <laughs> so and how's me.
0: it going to be released? It's going to be a...
1: It's been made partly in association with the Sundance Channel here in the States. And then the rest of the world, it'll be... But we, you know, Nick and I have always been attracted to those shows like High Maintenance, yeah. the show on Vimeo, and, and things, things that you can find your own way to consume.
0: And you've done things that not everyone does, like music videos, which will factor into this as we get closer to the present. But I mean, is that just... You know, some people are sort of snobbish about the format or the medium or whatever. What do you think made you open to?
1: I think I like things? experimenting with form. I think yeah. it's that you don't know quite what it is. And and as soon as anyone says, oh, it's the, you know, it's just the time. It, that's what the only snapshot you see of the relationship is the time it takes for them to have an awkward pint and a glass <laughs> of wine. Because you can only imagine the the sort of pressures on a couple right before they, have you know, they come from their various places of work before right. they go and see their therapist. And it was just so beautifully written in the way that Nick does, where it's very, very funny, but also, you know, very, very truthful and human. And yes, it was a very hard thing to say no to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I can't wait. So eight years ago here at the Toronto International Film Festival, I saw a movie in which you appeared playing the third wife and true love of a TV producer played by Paul Giamatti, who meets your character at the wedding of his second wife, This was just a crazy movie called Barney's Version. And you, I believe, originally went in to play the first wife just to further, you know, give people wives to keep track of here. But it was probably in some ways the most demanding part up to that point, right? You're supposed to age 30 years and deal with a pretty strange romantic partner here. What was that like for you?
1: It was a part that I really wanted to play because I thought, you know, that it was a part I understood this woman, Miriam and her love for this irascible, impossible, strange man called Barney, who adored her, but she found sort of, you know, reprehensible that he ran out of his own wedding to chase her onto a train. <laughs> and he says, marry me. And she's like, I've just been at your wedding. <laughs> and he pursues her. And, and and suddenly one day she gives in and, and they have this beautiful relationship. And and I adore Paul Giamatti, yeah. I loved working with him and I found it so easy to dive into that character, although obviously the, the, the pressure of, of aging was big and we actually, I remember the first, my first day was having to do this scene when she's in her late 50s and Barney has starting the early stages of Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and she goes to the bathroom and comes back to find, oh it's giving me, it's giving me chills now, mm-hmm. she comes back to find him not there at the table and she finds his wallet has been left on the table and she opens it and there is inside the note that she wrote to him when she left his wedding which was the score of the ice hockey game that she (laughs) knew he was desperate to be watching but had to kind of kowtow to his parents-in-law and she'd left a note on his table with you know the score and he'd kept it all these years and you know they're since separated and and they're actually having lunch that day in the restaurant of the hotel where he first saw her, and she then walks out, and he, in his Alzheimer's-ridden state, is looking around and clearly back in the point where they first met her. And it's very, very moving, but mm. a very, very hard scene to do on your first yeah. day. But but I think because of having Paul as a dance partner, we, we we managed it.
0: I think that movie was here at the same time as another movie, Made in Dagenham, was, I think, maybe the same festival. Did you have two movies here at once? Certainly it came out around the same time. Maybe, you tell
1: me, yes, It looks like
0: it. So those things, you know, you're clearly bubbling into more and more people's consciousness at that time. And then it seems like it hits in 2012 with two big movies, big blockbuster type movies, Wrath of the Titans and Jack Reacher, working with Tom Cruise on the second. I mean, this, again, just in terms of first time experiencing things, I'm trying to think, I guess, obviously, the Bond movie was big. But were these kind of things that, you know, on a scale that you hadn't experienced before? Or was, I guess, Bond the main point of reference?
1: Bond was the main point of reference in terms of scale of production. Wrath of the Titans was a great pleasure to do. You know, a very I think a very good director, Jonathan Liebesman, at the helm. And great potential, I thought, to create a female role model for young girls. Andromeda, sadly, in the final edit, you know, the the really interesting parts of her character were edited away. There were you know i'd studied the way generals behaved because she really was a general who led her troops into battle and there were some great big sort of you know pep talk she gave before battle and all of those were cut in the interest of getting to the monsters sadly <laughs> but you know you work on these films and you you, you acquire an awful lot of skills you requ- you acquire combat skills and a lot of physical skills really stunts and fight sequences and sword play and all that. And you see some amazing work in the costume departments and armory and set design.
0: Yeah. Do you know what it was that first led you to cross the radar of David Fincher, which is obviously going to bring us into the Gone Girl chapter of all of this in a moment? Was it one of those big movies? or
1: I don't know. And I was as puzzled as you were because somebody, (laughs) my agent said, David Fincher is interested in Skyping with you about this project Gone Girl. And I knew about Gone Girl because I was aware of this phenomenon that everybody was reading this book, but Mm -hmm. I hadn't read it. So I was doing a comedy, another comedy, which, you know, they did pop up after an education (laughs) with David Tennant called What We Did in Our Holiday. And I was Mm -hmm. up in Glasgow in Scotland. And I went out and got Gone Girl and started reading it. And I Skyped with Fincher. And we had this very, very Brilliant conversation because he's dazzling in conversation and interesting and unpredictable and strange and but what became clear to me was that this was not random. And of course now I know Fincher, he never does anything (laughs) randomly. But I thought, oh, I see. This this guy actually thinks I can do this. And
0: should we just tell listeners that this is, if they haven't seen Gone Girl, which they should, this is the central character Amy Dunn goes missing on her fifth anniversary, which sets her husband up for some unpleasantness as the suspect. And many, many big actresses were interested in this part, just to name a few that were reported. Charlize Theron, Olivia Wilde, Natalie Portman, Abby Cornish, Emily Blunt, Reese Witherspoon, who ended up being a producer. And he now comes reaching out
1: to you. And I didn't really know about any of that that you've just cited but I did know as I was reading the book that I did have this character in me and I felt I could do the duplicity of this character the manipulativeness the the way the untrustworthiness of her and 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 I thought but how on earth does he know I can do this and that was what really puzzled me at the time because I thought there's nothing I've never had the chance to do anything like this apart from on stage
0: right you hadn't yet played a lead in a film.
1: No, and I hadn't got to show that kind of subtlety of colour, really, and sort of deftness and sleight of hand that you, you'd you need. And I thought, well, I... And I would still, to this day, don't really know how he spotted it, but he has a sort of X-ray-like vision, and he, when you talk to him, it does feel like he's penetrating right in into you. And later, he said, it was actually because I felt I couldn't get a hold of you. He said, I'd seen quite a lot of your work, and he said, usually I'm very, very good at seeing what an actor can do and being able to kind of categorize what their wheelhouse is and he said and I couldn't do it with you and I thought well that's probably what I need for Amy
0: yeah so what was the process beyond that just a few more Skype interactions or did you have to actually go see him face to face or how did you have you met David
1: Fincher (laughs) Mm.
0: (laughs) he doesn't do anything simply right
1: We had multiple Skype calls, and he sort of kept track of my reading of the book. Because after the first Skype call, I hadn't finished it, and so each time I got to the end of another section, he'd he'd sort of be, I'd get a message on Skype, "How far are you?" And then we'd have another conversation. And I started to really enjoy these conversations. And then he said, "I'd love to meet you," and I was filming, you know. And I said, "Where are you?" He said, "I'm in St. Louis scouting." So I looked up. He said, "I'd like to meet you this weekend." He said, "Can you do it?" So I just said, "Yes." And then I looked up and there was one flight that went from Glasgow via New York to onto St. Louis. And the return flight got me back on a Monday morning, an hour after my call time. And the only flight available was a first class flight on the first leg, which was going to cost $7,000 or something huge at that yeah, point. Yeah. British Airways. And I did it. I put my money on the line and, mm. and thought, OK, I have to do this. And then I had this elaborate plan with my... My other half and the girl who's looking after my son when we were on set, and it was all revolving around a, a toothache and a, a, a tooth emergency, <laughs> and I sort of made a put a plan in place so that my driver who came to pick me up at the cottage I was staying in, would be diverted to go and get antibiotics from a local pharmacy that I knew wouldn't open till eight o'clock, so there was no chance of him coming and looking for me in the emergency dental surgery of the hospital. <laughs> Meanwhile, my husband was going to make a deft trip to the airport and then get me to set on time or, you know, an hour late, but right. then playing that I had a very, very bad tooth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I, I did it, out,
1: yeah. I, I, I did it, I did it. And and I got to St. Louis and had this dinner with with David where we talked about Amy and we talked about the transformation and he said, would I be prepared to kind of throw all vanity out of the window? And I was like, Are you kidding? I was born with no vanity. And then <laughs> vanity was thrust upon me, age 21, when I got cast in a Bond film. I said, I'm your perfect person to, to kind of throw my vanity out of the window. Please shed me of it. And we got on really well. <laughs> I kept getting messages from him. Of how's, how's the tooth? You know, when I was back. But that still wasn't the end of it. He then... Oh, but I have to say, on the on the, on the flight, when mm-hmm. I was at Glasgow ready to fly out, I got an email. He'd never actually emailed me before then, but suddenly there was David Fincher in my inbox with this <laughs> message that just said, for your eyes only. And there was the script of this film. And I mean, the thrill of that was, I can't tell you how exciting it was, was the knowledge that and not even my agents knew yeah, I doesn't was going. Do I, agents, right? And I didn't tell anyone I was going. And it was right. this tremendous secret. And, you know, and this opportunity that I knew would be, You know, A, to work with someone like that, but to get to explore a character that I'd just been craving doing that kind of work, you know, really. I mean, as you say, Barney's version was was the sort of closest I've come to the complexity of character that I craved, I suppose. But then that was, when we got back to England, that was followed up by multiple Skype calls, reading the material over Skype. Then, you know, he got together a read-through of the whole script with a, a bunch of actors, some of whom... Ended up in the film, some of, but, but were really just called in and, and, and we all did it on Zoom, a Zoom video conference. And I checked myself into a hotel again in London to sort of do that with sort of total focus. And then I got the part.
0: Do you remember how you found that out? Because that must have been a big moment.
1: I was. As has happened in many of the important moments of my life, I had no cell phone reception. I mean, that has been a sort of running joke really? with my agents that when they really need to get hold of me, I am completely unavailable. And it was, I was back still doing the movie that I had escaped Thing to go to St. Time. Louis on. Yeah. And I was on a mountainside in in northern Scotland, in a midge net, because, you know, the midge problem in Scotland is extraordinary. These little tiny black biting insects Uh, just swarm and they cover your face. And the only way, you know, you'd never be able to do a take, so you have to wear a sort of thing like a fencing mask right up until the moment you shoot, because otherwise your (laughs) face is literally crawling with Uh, insects. And anyway, a bar of reception came in and it was a message saying, we've got the offer.
0: Well, it was great for, it sounds like, about a minute. And then his partner producing and romantic Sian Chavin says we'll see you in four days right that's pretty jarring
1: (gasps) yes and then and then that was it that was that was the beginning of the whole process and and it was the conversations about the diet about about you know are you prepared to gain and lose 12 pounds three times over because of our shooting schedule so at that point you just say yes and then you think how on earth am I going to do this yeah they sent me to nutritionist they sent me to you know and and a doctor that they knew who was actually the doctor on the biggest loser (laughs) so (laughs) well equipped (laughs) to deal with the problem but you know it was not a fun process because I learned a lot about metabolism and you Mm. can trick your metabolism for about three days and then it starts trying to fight whatever Mm -hmm. you're trying to do
0: Mm -hmm. what was harder losing or gaining
1: well, both were hard because when you're trying to gain, at first, your body starts trying to shed it in whatever way it can, and your metabolism speeds up. Mm-hmm. So you make a big difference in the first sort of four days, and then it, and then it slows down. And the losing, again, was was it was all pretty hard.
0: You also had to deal with an accent, right? Or vocal coach worked there for quite a bit.
1: Yes, the the accent, and then her impersonation of of, of Nancy, the character that she plays when she runs off in the Ozarks. Right. And that required, you know, her doing a sort of not particularly effective New Orleans accent that she has to try and pull off and not very well. But there was a lot of studying. You know, David really wanted to have a feeling of Carolyn Bessette Kennedy to this character. So I studied a lot of imagery of her and we really talked about the nature of sociopathy.
0: But well, Let's focus on the Carolyn thing for a second, because she was not somebody who we heard much from, but was sort of seen as the icy blonde that you're saying earlier in your career, you did not want to be mistaken for. So did you have any inner conflict about, you know, your, your highest profile role to that point is going to be reinforcing that notion or you just say, well, I knew what statement. was coming oh, sure. because that right. was
1: the Amy, that was the cool girl Amy right. <laughs> at the beginning when she's trying to pass herself off. And I think Carolyn Bassett Kennedy was, you know, she was intriguing because yes, we never really heard her speak but we'd see this kind of intensity of romance, which doesn't really go with the Ice Queen. You know, you'd right. see, you know, there was there was never any doubt that there was this sexual charge there. There was something very sexy about her. And then there was also the intriguing and awful paparazzi intrusion that captured their rows. Mm-hmm. So you'd see these stand-up shouting matches happening on the streets of New York, and so you got a sense of the trouble. But the whole process of Gone Girl was, was really quite extraordinary.
0: I have heard it described as... 10 weeks of boot camp, which I don't know if that means that's the period when you were doing all these things to get ready, but then 100 days of production itself, at the beginning of which you were, it sounds like, physically not well, but also a little nervous. How did you handle that?
1: Gosh, you've done your research, Scott. <laughs> I'm very... <laughs> this is getting quite uncomfortable. Sorry. I'm getting getting hot having to take my sweater off. So how do you find this stuff? I flew down to Missouri to start shooting and I was, I was ill. And I think the producers possibly thought that it was just nerves. But I really, really was ill. And in the morning where I had to have some prosthetic work and I had to have the wig, literally I'd thrown up four times before the first days of shooting and I knew I was ill. And in retrospect, we ended up completely reshooting that day. But in the in the sort of wee hours of the night when I couldn't sleep, I realised I was, I was ill, but I was also terrified. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it was my... F- I was, I'd never been on set on the first day of a shoot ever. I've always sort of had the luxury of coming in, you know, a couple of weeks in or whatever. I've never been in such a lead, high prominent role and I thought, who can possibly stave off my nerves? And I ended up emailing Tom Cruise in the dead of night saying, you know, you've had this since you were 17 years old. You've carried these movies and, you know, have you felt this fear? that I'm feeling now. I'm feeling completely ill-equipped for the job. I'm feeling like I can't do it. I feel I'm going to fail. Uh, This is my most sort of truthful place that I'm sharing with you. And he, you know, sweet man and generous soul that he is, emailed me right back and he said, you know, I absolutely felt all these things. You know, he just shared the experience of Tad's age 17 and what he felt. And then he just said to me, but you're ready. He said, I saw it when we worked together and you are ready and you can do this. He said, so go get them. And and it was really... um, you know, I mean, he's one of the busiest men on the planet. And the fact that he took the time to get back to me was, you know, meant an awful lot.
0: That's pretty nice. Yeah. And were you ready in the sense that Fincher going to come at you with dozens of takes of things that are, you know, it's not, some people say they I get think, beat down by it? God,
1: you know, I've never minded that. You know, I think I come from place such a place of self-doubt that, you know, it seems, you know, the chance to redo it, of course, you're going to have to redo it because, you know, it's never going to be good enough. Because that's, <laughs> I think, I don't know when that ever leaves you, really. So for someone who's sort of got a lot of self-doubt, then then multiple takes is is sort of a blessing because you can just, you know, keep trying. And
0: How high did it get in terms of the Well, count? I
1: reckon, you know, you'd easily do 30, 35, 40 takes on the master. And he's really trying to trick you into not trying anymore. You know, he's trying to get you into a sort of loop where your everything is sort of slightly confused and things are happening organically and he's planting ingredients in. And, and it's an incredibly interesting way of working. It does make you think afterwards, will I ever be able to do another film when I don't get this number mm-hmm. of takes? And then later you realise that, you, you know, running on your own instincts, you, you know, you're OK. Mm-hmm. But it's just a different process. It's It's... It's like using a slow cooker instead of a microwave.
0: Right. <laughs> well, so that movie, if I remember correctly, opened New York Film Festival. It was very highly anticipated, went over very well. That all happens. You know that people are responding to it on the festival circuit, but then it comes to opening weekend because this movie is also expected to make some money and go over well in that sense as well, being adapted from a bestseller. What was opening weekend like for you to experience?
1: The opening weekend of Gone Girl was one of the most exciting points of my career because it was the drug, the sheer drug of knowing that you were part of a zeitgeist and a movie that adults needed to go and see in the theatre. And my fella went out that opening weekend in London and he went round, I couldn't really, but he went round our local cinemas and just asked, you know what's selling and everyone said everyone's talking about this film gone girl and he had Mm -hmm. you know he he saw the cues you know going out of the out of the cinemas out of the ticket desks and it was like nothing else it's something I crave to happen again now you know that that thing of being being the conversation that's on everyone's lips it's incredibly exciting and and watching the numbers roll up Mm -hmm. I mean I guess the numbers would have been rolling up like that for Bond and I'm sure for Jack Reacher, and but this was something that I was so much more a part of yeah. somehow, and it was an incredible feeling.
0: <laughs> I can only really imagine, and and then you know it just rolled on for the for the next few months because you were nominated for just about every award there is, and I wonder. On the one hand, the movie had that effect where it catapults you to a certain regard that you know not many people yet to have and and a stature in the business. But then there's also, you've talked about this in other interviews, there sort of was the sense that you did not immediately sign up for five other big movies. And I wonder if that was, what was the thought process in your mind strategically coming off of Gone Girl? You did plenty of good ones since then, but there was the sense that maybe you were a little hesitant to sign up for something right after. Is that fair?
1: I think my actual only game plan was that I needed to make a human being, having created a monster that was Amy, <laughs> and 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 I and I went and had a baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was such a str- that was the sort of truthful, strong urge in me, and I didn't even think about my career. But then I am in this game for the long the long game. I, I I've never really thought short term. I did films that I really mattered to me. I did a United Kingdom with David Oyelowo. Mm-hmm which was one of the most beautiful scripts I've ever read. The film didn't perform as we hoped it would. It's still a film I'm very proud of. Because Only the, the second story time is... you'd
0: also been able to work with a female director after yes, an after education. after an
1: education. And I just saw Amma here today in TIFF. That's oh, the great really? thing about TIFF, Yeah, you see people. I did. Then what did I do after? Well,
0: I, I certainly hostiles. A year ago, I saw Tell in Telluride, and then I think it came here as well, Toronto, for Scott Cooper with Christian Bale, who I think you would wanted to... Work alongside for a while.
1: Yes, I suppose those are the two films that I've made since Gone Girl that I really, you know, that that, that really really matter to me. Since uh, apart from the one that we're about to yes. talk about, yes. but but I did the Massive Attack video too.
0: Yes, well that led <laughs> the, to hostiles, the, right? the,
1: yes the the experimental work and the I suppose the desire to kind of be sort of in my body in a quite a profound way. I, I sort of have been feeling the need to dance, I suppose, <laughs> and I I met a dancer on on the United Kingdom, funnily enough, who was teaching me the Lindy Hop, which was the great <laughs> yeah. sort of dance of the 1940s. And, and I thought, gosh, here's a dancer and a teacher who can get me right out of my head and right into my body. And so I, when I was approached by Massive Attack to do this video, I, I called on Scarlet, Macmin is her name, to work with me on that. And we, we created this kind of in, insane thing, along with the director, Ringen, that felt so free and wild and a chance to kind of, you know have no words but still tell a story right I, I it was loved like it. a
0: like a cat with a bobbing thing in front of it was essentially what the it was sort
1: of about addiction it was it was funnily yeah. enough it, it led into a lot of other of my work you know it's led into the the film I'm here with Tiff about it was sort of about addiction to technology then and the compulsion to find this strange object down in the sun in the subway the song's called voodoo in my blood mm-hmm. and it's about the chemicals that get into our veins and the need to, you know, but whether they're, you know, legitimate chemicals or whether it's just a, you know, an obsession or Mm -hmm. a need to be somewhere or or love or technology or whatever it is that sort of has a corrupting influence on the body. And Um, that was
0: what caught Scott Cooper's attention for
1: that? for quite a wordless part Mm -hmm. in in Hostiles, which is a film I I love and I think is a film that will stand the test of time, I hope. I, I think you you like it, don't you? I I
0: love it. Yeah, Scott's a very talented filmmaker, I think. Okay, so now i got to know, how did my friend Matt Heinemann convince you, an actress of this caliber, to work with him on his first narrative film? He'd made two great documentaries, Cartel Land, which was nominated for an Oscar, and City of Ghosts, which should have been. But, I mean, I'm sure every first-time narrative filmmaker would love to work with you. How do you decide that this is the guy to... Take the chance
1: on. I also wanted him to take a chance on me, Scott. Is in is tr- truth, but but because you know you're always if you if you do the work that interests you, you're always going to be trying to make someone believe that you've got something in you that they haven't seen before. You know, in 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 saying that I can play Marie Colvin, who was American, who was more unruly than I might appear, who was older than me, who had a completely different voice, physicality, everything, you know, it's its its not an easy sell. But I think Matt and I met, I knew that he was a very original storyteller from seeing his docs. I managed to get myself to see a screening of City of Ghosts before it was released, and I just thought the truth he captures, the things he witnesses about human behaviour, I want to make a film with this guy because I know that, you know, if his language is is, is the truth of human behaviour... He's not going to fall for any artifice, and so I am going to have to make damn sure that my performance is totally rooted and truthful. And I've got to, if I'm to play this part, I've got to give him a character that he can observe as if he was making a documentary. I mean, that bit in *City of Ghosts*. Do you remember when the, when his one of his lead characters watches the footage put out by ISIS of his own father mm-hmm. being shot in a firing line, and he has his thumb in his mouth and he's reaching with a kind of controlled anger. He's not crying, he's watching with kind of tremendous self-control and he puts his thumb in his mouth and he reaches to the back and then his finger comes out and it's covered in blood and he just says, my teeth always bleed when I'm angry. Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of moment that you think an actor would never think of playing a moment like that, like that. And that's why I thought if I'm preparing for this role, if I get this role, I've got to stop watching narrative films altogether and just watch documentaries, which actually Mm -hmm. is something that Christian and I talked about. Christian Mm -hmm. doesn't Mm -hmm. watch a lot of films. He Mm -hmm. watches a lot of documentaries.
0: Wow. But this character seems so enigmatic in the sense that 99.9% of us, if there's a problem or there's danger, we run in the other direction. This woman ran towards it. Were you able to decipher clues from the script or her life? or I mean, what were the key ways that you could explain that to yourself?
1: Well, in preparing for a private war, we, I mean, Matt sort of showed me the way so much. We we had to treat it like journalists ourselves. We had to gain the trust of her friends, of Marie Colvin's friends, of other colleagues of hers, professional colleagues, people who knew that world, and interview them and learn that, you know, really make them trust that we, you know, were not their... Image of what a Hollywood actress, I mean, it might be, or or someone who was going to, I don't know, someone they could trust with their friend, really, mm-hmm. who really wanted to know the truth and 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 wasn't going to run with it for her own gain or something, you know, wasn't going to make a character that didn't bear any resemblance to their friend. So, you know, Marie Colvin was someone who believed passionately that you could make a difference by going into these dangerous places, and communicating the human cost of war. I think she felt so strongly that war is so often reported in statistics and facts and on a governmental level. And she felt that the real suffering happens with civilians. They are the people who really pay the price when armies, tribes and governments clash. And she wasn't fearless. It's the amazing thing is, is that she felt the fear and went there anyway. And yes, suffered tremendous fallout. You can't see the things she f- saw without experiencing an intense form of PTSD. And and really, I think Matt's made a film and wanted to make a film that's about the addiction mm-hmm. to danger, the addiction to telling the truth, the addiction to living mm-hmm. in a world where, you know, your stakes are life and death. And then the the, the, the PTSD that can follow in the, in the dark private moments at home and... And and where on earth you put everything you've you've witnessed?
0: Well, as someone who's very fond of Matt, I really wonder how he can't not be feeling some of that himself after we see what he lived through with Cartel Land being shot at, or City of Ghosts. You know, did you and he have any conversations about what is at the root of depicting PTSD? What are the we key? did,
1: we did. We had a lot of conversations. I mean, Matt was someone I I had to make myself very vulnerable. We had to have a we had to have tremendous trust between us. Yes, I mean, I think Matt really identified with Marie. I think he felt making cartel land that a, a kind of insanity maybe was was bred in him, a, a kind of need to be uh, perhaps a sort of notion that he was somehow protected by his camera, which of course was a complete fallacy, mm-hmm. and that he had a a need after he'd captured one lot of footage of a of a shootout that he needed to get more, which is very like Marie... When she was in Homs and everyone was advising her to get out, she was like, no, we need more. I can go back to the clinic. I can get more footage. And it's a sort of possession that comes over you. And it's a lack of rationality at that point. And we talked a lot about what PTSD looks like. And there are sort of moments of the film where, you know, he let me loose. You know, we did long takes. You know, we're not shooting on film. We had Bob Richardson, one of the greatest DPs Mm -hmm. in the world. You know, often it was just me, Bob and Matt and a focus puller and sound in a room and i had to go to the to the darkest places that i imagined that marie went to from the pieces i pieced together from talking to her friends from the things i read from the glimpses that you get when her facade cracks when she's doing an interview and we did long long takes of going to some pretty scary scary places. But the whole movie was unlike anything I've been part of because of, you know, I don't know if you've spoken to Matt, but when we were filming the war zone scenes, we we filmed them all in Jordan. But Matt, for the months he spent preparing it, interviewed almost every background actor. So when there's a scene in the widow's basement in Homs, which was one of Marie's big articles that she filed from Homs, was about a basement in which women and children were sheltering without food or Water, mothers who couldn't breastfeed because they had no food themselves and could only feed their babies sugar and water, and when he gave me this, presented me with that, we came to that day. This room was filled with Syrian women and children for whom that was their reality. So when I spoke to them, when you see the tears of the women I speak to, though that is their real story, and if I behaved, it's giving me chills now Mm -hmm, again. When I mm -hmm. behaved as Marie would have behaved. And really asked them and and learnt a lot from Matt about how interview technique, it all came back. and, And it was a very fierce and profound experience. And similarly, when we filmed the footage of the clinic, which then became Marie's final broadcast that went out on CNN, the man who was playing the father of the boy was a man whose nephew had been hit by a sniper bullet while on his shoulders and was killed. And so the grief that came out of that man on the day we were filming was something I almost couldn't bear and none of us could really bear Mm -hmm. to be around. So it's a film that's narrative and yet it has a tremendous quality of documentary about it too.
0: Well, the last two things, if I may, I just want to ask you about one other aspect of playing Marie because we see her in her non-working hours, I guess, in a way also. And the guy who's behind the camera in her life there was Jamie Dornan's character. And I thought it was pretty interesting. And I wonder if you can talk about the maybe that this scene, may, I saw it as perhaps a microcosm of things where there's clearly, it seems, some interest between the two here, romantically. I think. I shouldn't say clearly, it seemed that way to me. And yet, there's that one night where they're sitting there late at night. He eventually says, I'm going to bed. And right after that, she goes off and sleeps with a guy who she doesn't really even know. And I wonder if that was. Certainly not because she likes that guy more, but I wonder if it was a matter of just not wanting to make herself vulnerable in any way to anyone who she actually cares about, because she seemed to see herself as damaged goods in some way. I mean, it seems I, maybe I'm over analyzing that, but it just seemed like a moment that kind of said something about her.
1: Marie did see herself as damaged goods. I think she she did have a lot of troubles. And, and there's a there's another book that's going to come out about her written by Lindsay Hillsom, who's also another brilliant foreign correspondent and Lindsay had access to Marie's diaries which which I did not have at the time but Marie you know she she there was a lot of the self sabotaging instinct in her she she had some eating disorder problems she you know she loved to eat but she also wanted to be thin she sort of had problems with bulimia she then started to smoke you know 45 cigarettes 40 plus cigarettes a day she said even the iraqis said she smoked a lot <laughs> and I think there was something that she did feel she was unlovable and yet she was a major romantic. I mean she craved romance. She she you know she wanted to be Martha Gellhorn to you know somebody's Hemingway and and she did have a tremendous capacity for for love and it it always eluded her sadly. I mean she did have the love affairs but they disintegrated and she was a sexual person for sure. I think Paul Conroy the relationship with the photographer that you mentioned. I think that it really was a, a friendship born out of tremendous trust. I mean I've asked Paul who was with us on set quite oh, intensely about it and he survived that bombardment that killed Marie and Homs, mm-hmm. And he he came with us on set. I think he thought he was only going to come for a week or so and stayed the whole shoot, which was a tremendous thing to have someone oh. who really knew around all the time. It really was a protective, intense trusting friendship that those two had, a really extraordinary one, which perhaps is why you you get a sense of something that could be more. But I think it was it was really one of the healthiest relationships of her life, mm. actually, because it didn't involve yeah. sex.
0: We are here at Toronto, a place that I think helped to uh, unveil some of the biggest moments of your career, whether it was certainly we said Barney's version, but I think also an education was here and Pride and Prejudice, I believe, and yes. so many of these. So, in the spirit of reminiscing and looking back and all these things, just in terms of the big picture, how do you feel about where things are right now and, and this performance and the pantheon of all these other ones that we've talked about and, and just sort of the outlook moving forward? It seems like a pretty major moment.
1: Thanks for saying that. I feel I'm in an interesting place because I feel I'm free, actually. I feel I'm sort of free of a lot of the things that trouble me as a as in my early 20s, and I think I've got nothing really to hide and I think I'm working with directors who who see that. And, you know, if you, make your, if you completely trust someone and you open yourself up, exciting things come out of it. I'm feeling, I don't know, like I've sort of shed a few layers of skin. Sometimes I feel like I'm quite skinless at the moment. It could be because I've played Marie Colvin and then after that Marie Curie. Mm. And, and so two real women who led these big lives and who touched me very, very deeply... And I think when you enter into someone's life like that, it sort of takes you over body and soul in a way. It's a place where if you can get yourself out of the way and be a channel, some very interesting things come out. It's kind of what I'm working on anyway.
0: That's great. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you doing this and congratulations. Thanks for finding a few minutes here in Toronto. What
1: a great and slightly intimidating conversation. (laughs) (laughs)